Welcome to the Unabridged Podcast. I'm Ashley. And this is Jen. Join us for bookish episodes and check out our website, unabridgedpod.com, where you can find lots of new bookish content to grow your TBR. Sign up for our newsletter to find out more about online book discussions and upcoming events. Find us on Patreon for extra unabridged content. Join us on Instagram and Facebook at Unabridged Pod and message us there or see our website to get plugged into the Unabridged community. You want opinions about books? We've got them. Hi, and welcome to Unabridged. This is episode 239. Today, I am so excited to have author Barrett Holmes Pittner on, and we are going to be discussing his book, The Crime Without a Name, Ethnocide and the Erasure of Culture in America. Before we get started with discussion of Barrett's book, we are going to share our bookish check-in. Barrett, what's something you're reading? Uh, I'm reading uh, this book by Thich Han called Old Path, White Clouds, Walking in the Footsteps of the Buddha. It's just like a, a, a book about the Buddha's life. It's pretty cool, you know? It's, it's, it's nice okay. that you can have like a detailed book about someone important's life like that. Awesome. That sounds great. I talked not too long ago about I was reading Pieces Every Step by him and found that that was recommended to me when I was in the midst of dealing with my diagnosis and preparing for surgery. And it was just super, super helpful, like kind of small teaspoons worth of really profound thoughts. And I loved it. So I do want to read more of his stuff. Yeah, he's Tina Han's cool. Awesome. One of the books that I'm reading right now that I am loving is Sylvia Vasquez Lovato's In the Shadow of the Mountain, A Memoir of Courage. And I'm listening to this on audio and she reads it. And so I'm finding that really impactful. And this is about her pathway to the peak of Everest. And so she is climbing and a lot of the opening scenes are about the snow and ice and just those really intense moments of the actual climb. But she couples that with going back through her life. She's Peruvian and now lives in the U.S. And it's the unpacking of her childhood. She suffered abuse and sexual trauma. And so she's working her way through that and then also working her way through her adult years and the ways that she tried to get away from that childhood, but is also coming to understand that she hadn't necessarily come to terms and coped with that, but instead was trying to push it away. And then it's her journey to try to make some progress and feel more at peace. And so the part with Everest, it's not just her. She has brought some young survivors along with her. And so it's the journey of her bonding with them, convincing them to go on this trip, getting them to believe her that she could make it happen, that she could pay for it, that she could make it real. And then it's the actual like experience. And she talks about the contrast between what she expected and fantasized about and then the reality of the experience. And so I am just finding it so moving and powerful and raw, but also she's just so frank about like really examining everything about herself and and what she expected and what and why. And so I just have thought, I love it. I mean, I've just really been enjoying it and I'm interested to see how things wrap up. So again, that's Sylvia Vasquez Lovato's In the Shadow of the Mountain, A Memoir of Courage. And I will say she did several climbs prior to Everest, and so she talks about some of those as well, but it's really interesting. That sounds that sounds cool. Like, 
yeah, I, I sh- maybe I should have talked more about this other book, you know, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, we will dive into yours because I'm excited to hear you share some thoughts with us. And I wanted to give a brief synopsis before. And then, Barrett, I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about your intention, what you think the book is about, and then we'll dive into a few questions about um, some concepts I think you might want to talk with listeners about. The Crime Without a Name, Ethnocide and Erasure of Culture in America is an exploration of the connection between language and linguistic void and its impact on the ability of a society to bring about meaningful change. And this is from the publisher of this quote, Just as the concept of genocide radically reshaped our perception of human rights in the 20th century, reframing discussions about race and culture in terms of ethnocide can change the way we understand our diverse and rapidly evolving racial and political climate in a time of increased visibility around police brutality and systemic racism. The Crime Without a Name traces the historical origins of ethnocide in the United States, examines the personal, lived consequences of existing with an ongoing erasure, and offers ways for readers to combat and overcome our country's ethnocidal foundation. So again, listeners, this is Barrett Holmes-Pittner, and we're so happy to have you today, Barrett. Thanks for coming on. And I wondered if you wanted to just say a little bit about what the book's about or maybe what you were thinking when you started writing it, and then we'll talk a little bit about some of the ideas. Yeah. So the book's about the word ethnocide, which is the destruction of a people's culture while keeping the people. The word, like most people haven't heard of it. It's a pretty new word. It was invented in 1944 or coined in 1944. And so this word, um, we don't use it. And I think it's a pretty perfect word to describe the transatlantic slave trade and how that process of destroying African culture while keeping African people is a foundational aspect of colonization and the United States. And so if you have a society that has engaged in something for hundreds of years and has never cared to name it, then that means that you as a person aren't going to be that well-equipped at understanding or articulating the society in which you live. And if you can't articulate or describe where you live, then you won't really be able to like understand it or solve problems or or anything. And so this kind of hopefully fills that linguistic void so that we can get about doing good stuff. Yeah, I think that was something that really struck me when I was reading is how you demonstrated why it's so important to have the correct words to name a phenomenon before we could address it and bring about change. I think something that really resonated was just a very small moment in the book, but it was when you were talking about being in the cafeteria in D.C. after 9-11 and the correction of French fries to freedom fries and that moment where you're interacting with a cafeteria worker who is black and she comments that they're serving freedom fries now to make sure that you knew. And that moment where you you commented in the book and said, I'm paraphrasing, but you essentially said, we didn't have the words to communicate with each other. And so we said nothing. And I felt like that was such, like I said, it was just this passing moment, but I found it really profound. And I think that it spoke to what you prove in the book, which is that if we don't have the words, 
we really can't address the issue. And so I don't know if you want to explore that a little bit more, like how you've come about. And again, I think you do this in your book, but I just wanted to give you a chance to kind of explain to listeners, like, how did you come about ethnocide? And why do you think in general, you throughout your book, you're so thoughtful about finding the right word, even if the word's not a word in English, and then talking about how maybe when we translate in English, it doesn't line up quite right. But even though it doesn't line up quite right, we can take those concepts and we can try to figure out what they mean for us in order to make these next steps. Yeah. So that moment in college was was funny because I was interning for Bernie Sanders at the time, back when he was a, a rep. And this was right when we you know, went to war in Iraq. And you know, our whole society was all gusto about going to the Middle East and blowing stuff up. And it was so problematic. And I I knew it was problematic. And I wanted to go work for Bernie Sanders. But most of America just didn't really think it was as problematic as it was. And so when I'm in this cafeteria talking to this woman who's super excited about describing things as a freedom fries instead of French fries, because the French are now bad because the French have decided that they don't want to fund our in- our invasion of Iraq. <laughs> it's just like, this is absurd. And we just don't know how to communicate this to each other. Like we're clearly doing something bad and no one seems capable of clearly articulating why it's bad. And the people that have a clarity and understand that it's bad, such as the French, we now are demonizing them. So it's a, it's a pretty significant problem. But I'd say like the the journey for the book... I'd say for a long time, I've seen things and wasn't sure how to articulate it to other people. But it really hit ahead when I became a an opinion writer. And I actually had to write my ideas. I couldn't. And I had to write them pretty, pretty frequently. And that's when it started to really hit that it's maybe there's aren't the words for what I'm trying to say, or, or the words that we have just are inadequate. So then it was a journey of finding words, maybe making words to try to articulate what I'm trying to say. And so that's where the word ethnocide came into play, where I, I like constructed it on my own. And then I found out that Lemkin had already created it, but no one really was using it. And I, I felt that this was a more adequate way of describing our division in the U.S. along a, a cultural lens instead of like a, a purely racial one where we can talk about how there was a culture of destroying people's culture and that, uh, that, that created division. Yeah, I thought that that was really impactful. And then I think just furthering that exploration, you also talked a lot about how studying different cultures and the words they have things can deepen our understanding of ourselves and our place. And so I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about that. I mean, you in the book, you talk about France. So I don't know if you want to talk about that experience of like when you went for the first time somewhere else, or just more generally, how you have studied these different cultures and then brought in some of those words. I went to France for the first time on like a, on a school trip in, in eighth grade. And I just noticed that I was treated differently in France than I was in the U.S. And it wasn't, you know, differently in a, in a positive way per se, just different. And one story I give in the book is when I went to go buy stamps at the post office or, or, or send a letter, I believe the, the, the woman behind the counter didn't want to sell me stamps because she, thought I was African. France had all sorts of immigration issues and tensions and people didn't like like African immigrants. So this woman was not selling me stamps and my French was not any good at the time. And so I didn't know what she was saying. So my French host mother intervened and 
told the lady that I was not African, that I was an American here in France studying French. And the woman was like, oh, I'm sorry, here are some stamps. And it hit me that like in France and unlike America, it's like where you're from actually plays a role in it. Well, in America, if you're black, that's just like aesthetics, just how you look. It has nothing to do with where you are and where you're from. And so like the racism I got in France, it's still bad. And the racism that happens to Africans in France is still bad, but it was different than what it was like in the U.S. And so that really made me start to think about how if you go to some other country, people are going to perceive you differently, not because you have done anything differently, just because how they have been brought up to see the world means that they'll see you differently. And if people see the world differently, they will have different words to describe stuff that their culture is accustomed to seeing that another culture may not be accustomed to seeing. And that's why when you go to all sorts of countries, you'll, you'll see that they have words that are just really common and normal in their language that just don't translate into other languages because those other countries, those other places didn't feel the need to create those words. But, you know, these people in this place felt the need to create those words. And so I think that can definitely broaden your perspective on how to see the world, but also how to articulate and describe the world. Yeah. And in the book, you explored a lot about, like you said earlier about ethnocide, you also, and and you looked at how genocide developed around the same time, but became much more commonly used and understood, whereas ethnocide has continued to be minimally used. And certainly, like you said, it isn't just, I mean, that's why I think the name of your book is so impactful because as you highlight with the title, we don't even have the word to show what this particular phenomenon is like, or we're not using it commonly enough to recognize and think about what ethnocide actually means. But I wondered, do you want to talk a little bit about how did you go about unpacking words in other places. I loved a lot of, you shared a lot of the German words that came about after the Holocaust in an effort to speak to what had happened and what needed to be addressed. And so I didn't know if you wanted to comment a little bit on your process as far as how did you go about researching those words and finding out what they were and then looking at whether they did or did not fit for what you're wanting to explain as a phenomenon happening in America? That's a good question. For the most part, it was pretty organic. Like one thing that's weird, and I don't know if it's weird's the right word, but like this book is really just how my brain always worked. Like this is just how I've always seen the world. And when you talk to yourself, you don't really need words. You know, like like you need words if you envision that you need to articulate your idea to somebody else. But like when you communicate with yourself, like you know that you like something without really needing to say, ah, I like it. You just know it. You know, you just communicate to yourself. And so for me, it was more of a journey to find the words that could articulate to other people how I already saw things. And so therefore, the places to look were be the places that I already have an interest in. <laughs> um, and so... I'd say one of the more like concerted efforts was when you think about that genocide, that word was coined because of World War II, it became kind of obvious that around this time, once Europeans 
were basically about to wipe themselves off the planet, there became an urgency to come up with words to describe how what they're doing is bad. Because, you know, they didn't get into World War One or World War Two because they had a desire to do something bad. This was just like a logical extension of like what you do when, you know, you kill, you know, Archduke Franz Ferdinand or what you do when you're upset that your neighbors are making you pay for the war that you lost. You know, that's just like, that's just how Europeans thought. And next thing you know, they're about to wipe themselves off the earth. And so they had, there's an abundance of new ideas that came up to try to help convince Europeans to think differently so that they didn't continue having world wars. And so like genocide's one of those words, but I've always been interested in philosophy and whatnot. So it made sense to go look at existentialism, just kind of, oh, oh yeah, yeah. This idea makes sense. This, you know, this makes sense. I will say I didn't expect that German was going to be as, as integral as it turned out to be. But once you start looking at language or philosophy in Europe, like you really can't skip over Germany, especially as an English speaking person. Like our language is, you know, half Romance, half Germanic, all, you know, mixed together. So the words that are going to be closest to what an English speaker would be comfortable, like articulating something that's not too foreign, it's probably going to come from something that's French or German just because that's closer to our natural language. And so, uh, you know, the the German was a clear, it just kind of evolved. You know, you look at one German philosopher, then that gets into the next one, the next one, and it all starts to come together. Yeah, and I think I found it fascinating what you shared about the different words and how complex some of them were and how I think that speaks to that sometimes we are trying to find a word to articulate a phenomenon. And that sometimes requires some complexity to the word itself. And so I thought that was really fascinating. But then I think the other part that was really interesting is how do we address something in the past in a way that can help us move forward for meaningful change? And so I don't know if you had the if you were, if those things just parallel came along as you were researching, but it was really striking from the reading perspective to think about how both of those happen, that there's a need for articulating new language in order to find ways to both address and move forward as things happen. But that was striking to me. And like you said, it maybe it, maybe you weren't thinking, oh, I'm going to focus on Germany. But I did think that those two aspects evolved for me as the reader of thinking about what had occurred there and then what that might mean for for a society trying to reconcile and, and think about what do we do now? Yeah, yeah. So Germany, it's one of these wild things. But prior to World War One, Berlin was essentially like the cultural capital of Europe. Like Paris wasn't the place. Paris became the place you know, after the fact, but that was largely due to the fact that the Parisians said, we're not, we're going to like, we're going to just surrender so that you don't destroy Paris. You, you know, that makes sense. We we don't want the heartbeat of our country to get decimated. We've seen what's happened to all these other places. And so, you know, don't touch Paris. And so, you know, Paris became the cultural capital. Prior to that, Berlin was the place. And it makes sense if you look at a map, like where Germany is geographically, it's hard 
to go anywhere through Europe and not go through Germany at some point. It would make sense that that would be like the cultural heartbeat of a country, of a continent, based on where it is geographically. And it also makes sense that France would be that to a certain extent too. Like, you know, if you're going up from Spain or whatever, like it's it's natural that you'll pass through France, uh, just like you'd pass through Germany. Um, and so, you know, the the thing is in the in the US when we talk about Germany, we kind of painted as a country that's defined almost exclusively by World War II. And that limits our perspective of this country that's massive. Like we send all of our kids to kindergarten and we act like that's not a German idea and a German word. You know, it's like, it's wild. <laughs> and so um, once you, once I just started doing some like basic exploration into German philosophy it just it just all fell into place like they they are as a culture have embarked on a, a very serious process of coming to terms with the past and and exploring and not you know not exploring that they've done it perfectly the whole time but there's a concerted effort to address the horrors of the nazis and create a culture where people know not to repeat that while also you know making it so that people don't feel you know depressed uh, all the time they can still be happy to be german while acknowledging that germany did some really bad stuff in the 20th century and that's you know that's that's complicated that's difficult but i think that's a process that a lot of countries need to undertake and if you don't have the language and the philosophy to do so then you're not going to do it one thing that i think German also is really great at is their language is so constructive. Like you are really encouraged to make words in that language. You can just put it together. Like there's a couple words that in the book that I just made up and I didn't even tell people I made it up. It was just kind of like, let's see what happens if I just make up this word and just don't tell anyone if they just assume it's real. I mean, well, it is real, but like, you know, assume it ex existed before I made it. Yeah. And, uh, and everyone's just like, yep, that word makes sense. Even German people are reading. Like, I've never heard of that word, but yeah, makes sense. It's like, lovely. And so so it, it became really beneficial, like, uh, linguistically, because as a language, as a people, they encourage you to make words to solve problems. And I don't think we have that same impetus in, in America. We only like to make words if it's going to like sell a product or something. If it's the name of a company or it's going to make some money, we make, we'll make up a word for anything. But if it's a word that can actually like make your life better, we have no desire to do that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think like within the academic realm, there is some acceptance of making words, but I think it isn't normalized in the larger culture. Right. And so even if there is a place where that's happening, it is a very limited sphere. Yeah. It's like if you make something, but then you don't want anyone to know that it exists. Did you make something? And I, th I think, you know, and that's a whole other conversation about how academia is like apart from the general public, which I think just such a culturally strange thing that's not just like America, but just, you know, the West in general, where the people that have the knowledge and the wisdom speak a language that like regular people can't understand. And so it's like a culture that encourages the masses to just be uninformed and know nothing and for the geniuses to speak gibberish. I, well, and I thought uh, you were talking about the geography, and I think that related to both 
who is and is not included in these conversations and also to how geography can shape what happens. I wondered if you wanted to comment on how does our geography in the U.S. make it harder to bring about change and what are some things you think will help us overcome that? Because I felt like you made some really good points about that as well. Like American geography is, it's just, our country's gigantic. I, and I think we really don't really take that into consideration where like these European countries are so tiny. Like they're just so small. Like England is the size of Alabama. And so what happens with Europeans, say France is a country that has protests and strikes all the time. If you shut down like three cities, you cripple the whole country. You know, right. like you get everyone's attention. Yeah. If you have a strike and it shuts, it slows down Paris, like uh, the the subway workers, the metro workers in strike in Paris, that's crippling the whole country. Nothing's getting done. The U.S., you could have a subway strike in New York, Washington, D.C., Chicago, L.A., all at the same time. Wouldn't make any difference. Nobody would care. Wouldn't matter. And that's not because people don't care. It's because like the country's so big that that's not going to cripple the whole country. So the scale of like organizing that you need to make like a, a massive impact is just greater here because the country's bigger. There's more people and it's more spread out. Like China is the size of us and they have four times the amount of people like this country. And if you if you get in your car and go to the Midwest area, it's just spread out. Like there, you go to Texas too. There's just, we're all spread out here in this country. There's so much space that's left for people to live. And so that makes it really hard to create change in the country just because we're so spread out. All the economic centers are like specialized. It's all, it's just, it's, it's huge. But one thing that that also does is it makes it really hard for you to get new ideas. Because if you're in Europe and you're driving a car, you make a wrong turn and you very well could just be in another country. Like it's that, that they're that tiny. And you get in that new country and new language, new laws, new everything. And you know that those new, that language or those laws, they're not bad. They're just different. And so now you are naturally going to be aware of a group of people that have a completely different way of life that's not good or bad it's just different and now you're going to be encouraged to objectively look at it and anal- analyze it and think of you know maybe take slivers of this and that to improve how you live in the adjacent country that's just not a thing you can do in the US i can hop on an airplane in new york and fly to la and apart from just like the natural like geographical weather differences Stuff's going to look the same. The grocery store might have a different name, but the grocery store is going to be the same. The fast food place might be a different brand. Same thing. The suburbs are going to look exactly the same. <laughs> you know, like, right, right. I remember you speaking about that in the book. And you, you go to one suburb and you've gone to all of them. It's pretty arduous just the amount of effort as an American you have to take to like learn about this country that's so big. And then there's a whole nother level of effort you have to undertake to just learn about other countries because they're an ocean away in in many cases. And that's that's a lot. Yeah. And I mean, I felt like you spoke to that when you were talking about your time in France and you are your same self 
But when you take your same self and put yourself in a new environment, suddenly you see a lot of things in a new way. And I do think that's harder to replicate for some of sometimes for our young people here because there isn't that moment of it's harder to make those experiences happen, but it is those moments that help us reconceptualize the assumptions we're making about the way things are. Yeah. No matter where I go in the US, I'm a black person. Like there's no ambiguity about it. That's just it. The only time I'm something different in the US is if it's a foreign person who thinks I look like I'm from their country. You know, if I go to someplace else, like if I go to France, I am a whole array of things. People think I look North African. My hair is rather long now. And so I get people think I'm Muslim. I get all sorts of stuff. And when it's North African, that's like, sometimes it's Egyptian, sometimes it's Moroccan, sometimes it's Algerian, all this type of stuff. That's just because they look at me and they have a perception that's based on like a a far more diverse understanding of the world. And they just objectively think I look like someone that grew up down the street from them in some country that's not the United States. It's fascinating to walk around some other country and everyone come up to you and speak in some language that you've never spoken and talk to you. And then they're surprised. You're just American? Okay. I thought you were from someplace else. And that happens to me everywhere I go. But that doesn't happen here unless it's some foreigner, which is, I think it's great. If I go to like Queens in New York, phew, I'm everything. I'm all, I'm all, I'm all, I'm all the ethnicities. <laughs> I want to ask you about a couple of the terms that you come up with in the book that you are interested in implementing in the U.S. So I want to talk about that. But before we get there, I wondered if you wanted to comment on the idea of bad faith and why that is so critical to our exploration of the past, the present, and the future in the U.S. Because I think that before we start talking about moving toward new terms and you know, the cultural naissance that you speak to later in the book, I'm interested in touching on that part, because I think that's kind of where we're stuck in a lot of ways. Yeah, 100%. And so in existentialism, Jean-Paul Sartre introduced this phrase, uh, bad faith, but in French, it's mauvaise foi. And so people are, are casually familiar with the idea of something being in bad faith, you know, something in good faith is something that's trustworthy, something that's in bad faith is something you can't trust, you know, someone, you know, they're lying to you, that's in bad faith, you know, and you don't want to do that. But our common understanding of bad faith is that the person who's engaging in bad faith is conscious that they're doing so. Like they know that they're lying to another person. They are they are consciously deceiving another person and they're consciously engaging in a bad faith relationship. What Sartre brought in is this potential, this idea that people may be lying to themselves. So they may believe that they're engaging in a good faith relationship with somebody else but it's still bad faith because they happen to believe the lie is the truth. So like a really simple but absurd way to like ex- explore it would be like, what if I believed that I was one of the best basketball players in the world? I just wholeheartedly believe it. There's just no fiber in my being that doesn't believe that to be true, even though we all know that's not true. Like I like basketball, but no. I'm not one of the best players in the world. If I go and I talk to somebody and interact with someone and have a conversation with them, 
from the perspective of being one of the best basketball players in the world, that's bad faith. Like that's you know, like if I if I'm like, hey Ashley, you know, let's go down and to the the gym and we'll do two on two and don't worry, we're gonna win all the games because I am just the best. <laughs> I'm gonna win. And she and Ashley's like, I don't really play basketball. I'm not I don't don't worry about it. Like I'm unbelievable. We're gonna we're gonna dominate. You get down there and we just get decimated. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. That would be, you know, in a, in a comical, like pretty trivial way, bad faith, mauvaise foi, because I just believe that lie to be the truth. And now I've sent Ashley down the wrong path because she believed me. Yes, that's what I like about the example is that it sucks me in too, right? I also now believe what you have professed and act accordingly. Yeah. So yeah. I have convinced myself that the lie is the truth. And now I just actively outwardly live that lie. Because I think, and I trust you. Yep. To tell me that I'm so convincing, I'm gonna. I believe it to every fiber of my being that I'm the best at basketball. You know, <laughs> it's nuts. And so, this is a this is a big issue. Now, this concept derives from a previous like European idea, which derives from a Rene Descartes. I think, therefore, I am. You know, this idea. I think, therefore, I am is how philosophers describe it's like an it's essence which is based on like ideas so like you think therefore you are therefore your existence derives from your thoughts your ideas so your ideas precede you being alive that's the general idea of this i think therefore i am and europeans have adhered to this perspective for a very long time existentialism flipped it on its head. And so if you have this idea that is, I think, therefore I am, then any of your thoughts can be legitimate. It just doesn't matter because you think it, therefore I am, therefore they are. So if you think, therefore you are, and then you see a group of people and they're just different than you, maybe, you know, they're just different and you go, they're not, I think that they're not real people. Well, then they aren't. And that is, is a perspective of the world that's just based on having ideas be more important than people's existence, even your own existence. And this is how Europeans has just chose to view the world. You can see how that created so much horrible stuff during, you know, with colonization, ethnocide, you know, the othering of all sorts of people and massive, massive problems. If you have a perspective that's essence-oriented, which America clearly is, the country is based on an idea of us being great and an idea that other people who don't look European aren't as good. You know, these are just ideas. They're not based on anything having anything to do with reality. If you believe that, that's a lie. Lots of people believe that to be the truth, and then they live that lie as if it's the truth all the time and they organize societies and economic structures and schooling and all sorts of like absurd stuff about this essence oriented perspective. And so to understand the United States, you need to understand the idea of bad faith because there's a lot of people that have like good intentions and want to do the right stuff, but their perception, their understanding of what good is, is bad. They just don't know it. They just like, they've been told a lie 
and they believe that lie to be the truth to understand this like large swath of the American public. Bad faith or mauvaise foi is an essential term for getting it. Because, yeah, clearly there's a lot of people that like are conscious they're doing something bad and they just don't care. But there's a whole bunch of people that wholeheartedly believe that they're doing something good and they're really, really doing something bad. And you have to you have to understand like who those people are, why they, you know, why they think like that and how you like describe them to themselves and to other people. And mauvaise foi, bad faith is quite helpful in doing so. Yeah. And I think that that coupled with your explanation of how we have to have the words to have the conversations and we have to find the right words to be able to talk about things that that's really impactful. And so I wondered if you wanted to speak to needing to find a new term. So you talk about the evolution of now using the term black and capitalizing it so that it is a proper noun and not just a color denotation. But then you were saying, you know, that evolution's not finished. Like that we're not finished with that journey. And you talked about, you came up with the term Fricano. And so I went and I also, just as an aside, and then I want you to talk to about about that. But I really loved how you also talked about the gender of that and are that that is also evolving and we are having many discussions in languages that are gendered particular. I mean we're having trouble working through that in English, but especially in Languages where every adjective is gendered. How do we yeah. make the words speak to the truth of us as a people on a spectrum? And so I felt like you really commented on that well, but I'm going to stick with Fricano since you were explaining why you used that um, derivative of it. And I just wondered, do you want to say how you came up with that and why you think that might be a meaningful term to use? So when you think about ethnocide and it, the goal of, of it is to destroy people's culture or keeping the people then you think about where like collective names come from by and large it's a cultural name it's a cultural name and sometimes that culture became a nation but like that cultural name is like the root of the people and so when you're destroying someone's culture you're also going to destroy their collective name you know and so one thing that people don't really think about is that like America has really worked to prevent people of the African diaspora from being able to self-identify. That's just a key part. Like colonizers destroyed all the culture and then it was, we're going to give you a name. That's your new name. And that name is inherently dehumanizing. And like, that's your name. That's not, you know, it's not that you have this African name and this is the dehumanizing name. It's like, no, the African name is gone and it's just the dehumanizing name. And that's, how it's going to be. And like, that's, that's a massive atrocity. That's really bleak. A key thing as for the black community, once you start like paying attention is part of the act of liberating ourselves from the ethnocidal oppression in America has been consciously self-identifying. And so like the N word is not a word that you can casually say anymore. That just used to be the word. Then there was colored and you know negro all of these words that have roots in dehumanization and the absence of culture where it's like it's either you're just a color or you're not a human liberating yourselves from these terms has been part of the black journey since we were forced to live here around the 
civil rights movement, we took a more active voice in that where black and I'm proud and black became capitalized, but that was capitalized like within black circles, not in like mainstream print or whatnot. Like still it was Negroes and colored and stuff like that. And then around the eighties, African-American became another term that we created for ourselves to distance ourselves more from the dehumanizing white like identifiers. And now we're using a black identifier, like one that we created. But clearly, like African American has some flaws in it, and that most people, the African diaspora in the US, haven't been to Africa. And once you acknowledge ethnocide, where it's like the destruction of culture, claiming like African culture in the same way that like a white person is going to claim Irish or German, or whatever, makes it seem as though that the culture hasn't been destroyed. It makes it seem as though, like, the terror hasn't really happened, that it's just, like, it cannot, you know, we know this isn't true, but it makes it easy to articulate it as if it's just, like, another immigrant story. That's clearly not the case. And then we there's also, like, a rise in African immigrants, who, that they are African-American in a similar way that people would be, like, Irish-American or whatever. And so there's a, it's inadequate, and so next thing you know, black became like quite common, but that was like a lowercase b. And I always thought that was weird. And for the longest time, the standard was that black was lowercase and African-American was capitalized, but they were interchangeable. How can one be a proper noun and the other one not be a proper noun, yet they're interchangeable? And I remember one of the answers I got was that, for white people, white was also lowercase. And if you wanted to get like more specific in the culture, you would just say that they're French American or Italian American. So like that gave that. And so for black, the equivalent would be African American. And like that still speaks to the same problem where now like the atrocity is being covered over and now it's being articulated as if it's an immigrant story. So, you know, next thing, you know, the push is to capitalize the B in black. That makes a lot of sense. But at the end of the day, we're still deriving our identity with a bit too much of an emphasis from like what white colonizers called us. And it's not something that like accurately tells our story. And so I felt there was a need to imagine what that word could be. And so I did that. And so the word I, I coined is a uh, Fricano. And it was partly inspired by, uh, by, the word Chicano, which was Mexican people in Southern California acknowledging that they're still Mexican, but they just don't live in Mexico. So they had to come up with a new word for that. And so they cut off the M-E, which left an X, which was Chicano, and that she became a C-H. And it's like, ah, that makes a lot of sense. And so what I did is I got the word African because we were African at one point. And then the transatlantic slave trade took us from the physical place that was Africa. So we were African, no longer in Africa. So I cut off the A in African and that left Freecon F-R-I. But here's the thing, we got taken away and now we're in this colonizer, ethnocidal environment in the Americas that exists to like destroy our culture. So we're not fully able to like relate to each other via our African culture. Like clearly to a certain extent, yes. But if the goal is to separate people from different tribes and people that speak the same language for them to be separated, families be broken up, you know, 
cutting people's hair or getting rid of their clothes so you can't identify as the same if it's that extensive. You have to acknowledge that there's going to have to be something else that's going to unite these people. And that's clearly going to be the desire to free themselves from ethnocidal oppression. So then I changed the F-R-I to F-R-E-E. And so that made it free con. Then the next thing I considered is that that word's exclusively English. And we know that like the English weren't the only people that engaged in the transatlantic slave trade. So I recommended adding an O or an A or an E or an X to the end. So it's like linguistically inclusive to Spanish and Portuguese speakers. And then that creates, you know, the whole other dilemma with regards to gendered words. And the answer to that is I can't have an answer because each country is having their own discussion regarding how they do it. You know, some places like the X more, some places like the E more. And so I felt like just having that extension into those languages made sense. <laughs> There's no patriarchy guiding the word. I use Freecano because I'm a, I'm a guy. Not because it's better than any of the other ones. Yeah, I loved that. And I just wondered if you wanted to comment on it, because I think that part of what I appreciated about your book is the way that you were able to explore these hard truths, but also remain hopeful that we have an opportunity to bring about change. And you talk about several different ways that that can happen. And so I felt like that word was one example. Yeah, I say one thing that's funny is like, the, the hopeful about bringing about change, like, yeah, of course. But at the end of the day, it's like, what else are we supposed to think we can do? To be hopeful, that's just regular existence. Like, Well, but I do think that you acknowledge in the book that a lot of what we've done in America is just look the other way. And so there has been a history of creating an imagined past that celebrates this beautiful picture of America while also looking away from the hard truth. And I think what you do in the book, you know, there's two different things, right? One is like, how do I find personal meaning? Like, how do I get up every day and like, try to like, I believe I need to make change in the world, right? So like that, that gives me meaning. But then there's also a collective experience of how do we reconcile and reconcile is the wrong word, because I think it suggests that we're going to come to peace with. And I don't know that that's the goal, but I do think that there has to be some reckoning of what has happened. But also you can't, like you said before, you can't make people so miserable about these crushing, I mean, they are crushing, (laughs) these crushing things that have happened, that then the people lay on the ground instead of saying, oh, we better do some work, you know? (laughs) So like, so this, this is funny. So one of the uplifting parts that happened near the end of the book, because I got to walk through the whole problems to then be able to articulate what a solution even looks like, you know? So the whole book's not doom and gloom. But I remember when I first found slash coined the word ethnocide, I, I felt a sense of relief. I was like, oh, thank God. I've finally been able to articulate this thing that I've seen and felt my whole life. This is really empowering. And so then I go tell it to somebody else. And it just made everybody sad, made everyone sad, because now I've like, I really like quite clearly articulated that like, we live in a bad place and like, we might not even know what good is. Like, that's the level of bad. And it made everyone just like super sad. And I thought that I, I'm not going to say that that's funny. Like someone's sadness is not funny, 
But it's like, that was the response. It was such a profound juxtaposition where I felt empowered. It's like, all right, cool. It's easier for me to do stuff now because I can articulate the problem before. I'm just talking nonsense all the time. Yeah. Swimming in the problem, but without the words. Exactly. You know? And so I felt empowered. Now the next thing is, okay, there's a very real urgency to go ahead and start naming those new words because for other people, this word that empowers me is just going to be debilitating. It's going to make them depressed. <laughs> and so I got to make the the words that are empowering that can show what made me excited. You know, like it was like I didn't get excited about the word ethnocide because it's like, all right, great. Now I just I can just talk about bad stuff all the time and that's fun. It's like, no, 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 I can do the next thing. But that's the thing. Like you just you just have to do stuff. And if you have like a concept of what good is and what bad is, this is that's a whole other conversation. But I do talk about how like in many ways, like the Western world doesn't have a clear idea of what good is. And there's like a need for a word for like this is what good is and what it looks like and what it does. And this is what a good place should be called. The West just doesn't do it. It's just so weird. Like good is like an aspiration that you hope to get there. And it's already like pre-made. Like you don't make it. You just like arrive in it. Yeah. Having some things that you coined. The one other one that I wanted to ask you about. Do you want to talk about Evtopia? I thought that was really fascinating. And also I felt like for the reader, that was another moment like that. And then the cultural naissance and talking about, um, so I don't know how you want to explore those, but I felt like those were things that it was kind of like, here we are. And you explored how we got there. But then you also are looking to here we are. And this is what it could look like to be in this place and to start moving forward in a different way that is no longer going to be so rooted in these problems that have been intrinsic to our society. Yeah, totally. So first, after saying ethnocide and seeing everyone be depressed, there was a clear need to figure out what not ethnocide was. <laughs> yes, right, right. <laughs> I think that's a great way to put it. It's like, okay, well, yep, that that sucks. And that's really bad. And once you show that, then you're because like, Because okay. once you see it, once, it, once I describe ethnocide, to people, they just see it everywhere. Like they just go, it's just like because it's it's everywhere. The whole our whole society is built around it, and so it makes them all real sad. And once you see it everywhere, and you're sad, and you've looked at stuff that's bad, and you've thought it was good, then you clearly are going to doubt your capacity to do good things. Yeah. And so I had to come up with a what a word and practices for what was not ethnocide. And so the clear word for that was ethnogenesis where ethnocide is the killing or murder of culture. And so you counter that by the birthing or creating of culture. And so I use two words to describe this. One's ethnogenesis, but the other one is cultural nascence. And this one I think is quite important because we really like to use the term a renaissance. But like America is basically the attempt at making having a renaissance of Europe in another place. So there's... There's a problem with rebirthing stuff here. like, And due to the fact that this country is so diverse, there's so many people from around the world that live here, we aren't going to rebirth one thing. like That would be just oppressive. What we're going to have to do is give birth to something new. So it's naissance, which is birth, and not renaissance, which is rebirth. So it's cultural naissance. You're creating culture. And so you know, you then have to 
once you have the word, you can start imagining what some practices, some activities could be to create culture. And also that term makes it easier for people to not appropriate culture. Because if you're creating culture, you're now appreciating culture. And if, even if you mess up, you can articulate to somebody that like, this was my philosophy. This is what I, this is the practice that I was trying to engage in. If I made a mistake, please let me know because I can modify it because I'm trying to do X, Y, and Z. For the most part, Americans just try to not appropriate culture, but they don't have the words to articulate proactively doing a good thing. Cultural naissance gives you that language to proactively like do something good and not just try to not do something bad. And so in the book, I give an example of Dia de los Muertos, where I have cultivated this practice where it's a cross-cultural ancestor remembrance practice inspired by Dia de los Muertos, which is Day of the Dead. If you've seen the movie Coco, it's that. But, you know, in the U.S., African-Americans, you know, we have... Uh, been traumatized for a real long time. Uh, the Black Lives Matter movement, if you notice, like after Eric Garner or Michael Brown or Trayvon Martin, after they were murdered, there was an altar that was made to remember these people. And so we have a long tradition of making altars in, their, in response to someone being unjustly murdered. Well, what if we got that and just proactively remembered people who passed away, whether they passed away from old age or a, a murder, but something now we're like actively enriching our culture. And since we live in a place that's so diverse, you know, it's not like if you're a black person, you're only going to have black friends. No, clearly this would be something that you'd share with your white friends, your Asian friends, your Latino friends, your indigenous friends, whoever. And now we start creating something that's cross-cultural. And then once you look at people from across the world, for the most part, they all have some sort of tradition that's similar to this that kind of gets pushed to the, you know, to the back burner once they move to the U.S. because it's just not a thing that there's like a template for them to do it here. And so they just don't do it. And so, you know, this, this right here is a process of creating culture where now you got a practice that was started by indigenous people in the Americas that was then, you know, morphed into like, Catholicism, you know, via the Spanish, but still has like lots of indigenous roots, but it's very popular in Mexico and through other parts of the Americas. And now it expands into the US and it gives a platform for, for people of color, especially, but also like white Americans and anyone to actively and honestly share their culture together with the idea of creating culture. Like that's something that you can do practice annually to counter ethnocide. And so like my organization, the Sustainable Culture Lab, like we do that every year and the goal is to spread that to each and every city. And so like that's a that's an action, that's a thing that you do. Like ethnocide is something that people do, you know. It's not theoretical. You know, creating culture is a thing that you do. It's not theoretical. And so there's ethnogenesis and cultural naissance. Those are the same word the same idea, you know, they mean the same thing, different words. Um, but then there's the other word, uh, which is evtopia, which means good place. And this right here, like, I will tell you, this just blew my mind when I was doing research for the book because, like, no one realizes this, but utopia doesn't mean good place. It means non-existent good place. And that's what it's always meant. And it's incredible that, like, 
We just act like that's not the case. Thomas More made, published the book Utopia in 1516. What he did is he got the Greek word topos, topia, which means place, and then the Greek prefix eu, which means good, and the Greek prefix ou, which means like not or doesn't exist. And he just cut off the o and the e and put the u onto topia to make his own word. He just coined this word, which means non-existent good place or good place that doesn't exist. He wrote his book, Utopia, about this aspirational place that was perfect, that we could go and live in a utopia, but you can't live in a utopia because the word means you can't live there because the word means it doesn't exist. So even this concept of good is a good that's unobtainable. It's an aspirational good that you just will never get. That's a massive problem for a society to try to figure out how to do good things, but their concept of good is a good that doesn't exist that they can't obtain. That's wild. If, if that's how your language and culture philosophy, that's their relationship with good, you're going to spend a lot of time trying to you know not be bad because you can't spend time being good because good doesn't exist. It's not obtainable. It's nuts. And if you go and you read the book Utopia, the just the summaries that they have explaining like the words and everything, it just doesn't make any sense. Like they they still try to act as though the word means no place. No, it doesn't mean no place because there's other words in the book that mean know this and know that, and he starts those words with an A. If it if it meant no place, it'd be an atopia. You know, what hit me is that our society just doesn't have a word for good place, which is just bleak. Now that's another thing that'll make you sad, but it's really easy to make a word that means good place because we already know that EU means good. So I just attach the EU to topia, which means good place. Now in, in Western pronunciation, it would be like utopia. That's not good enough. (laughs) But luckily for us in Greek, EU is pronounced ev. So I pronounce it evtopia and I put an accent on the top of the U so that you can see that it, it's differently. The accent's called a charon. It just looks like a V. It, it's in Czech and indigenous languages in the Americas use it. And so it means good place. And so then the question then becomes, well, what's this obtainable lived good look like? Like, what is that? Which it's funny. We don't have that conversation. <laughs> and so... So the the answer for what does like this lived obtainable good look like is like, what's a good friend? That's what hit me. A good friend is good because they sustain and nurture you. Like if you, if you need someone to pick you up from the airport, a good friend is that person. You know that they'll be there for you. They'll support you. They won't leave you stranded. You know, they won't take you down the bad path to do something horrible. That's a good friend. If you imagine who you're going to hang out with 10 years down the road, it's probably your good friend because you that's just how it is. A bad friend can have all sorts of things that we would say are good. Like that bad friend could be really attractive. They could have like lots of money. They could be funny, smart, all these things that we are like, these are good things that you should have. They could have all those things, but if they don't like nurture you or support you, then they're not a good friend. If they're not going to pick you up from the airport, they're not a good friend. We all have friends that are flaky. The ones that are good friends that are flaky, when push comes to shove, they'll help you out, you know? (laughs) And so we have this awareness 
of what a livable, attainable good is, but we just haven't further developed it. And so like a good friend, that is the foundation for a good place. So a good place and Evtopia is a place that nurtures, sustains you. It's sustainable. You know, stuff like that is how you cultivate a good place. And if you pay attention to a lot of cultures, and I give examples in Europe just so that people know that I feel that Europe does have ideas that are sustainable and good. We just have to like focus on them and acknowledge that they're, that's what they are. You can see that they're far more obtainable than we care to think. The key thing to empower us is to have the word. So like I've known Ashley for a long time and a while ago, me and my partner, we were just talking about our house and stuff we need to do to make sure our house is fine. And, you know, all the boring stuff that you have to have when you live with someone, you know, I'm sure you and Mayhan have these conversations <laughs> all the time. For sure. They're really annoying. Yep. But the key thing is like, if you can say like, I'm having this conversation because I'm trying to create an utopian space. Like the philosophy is we try to make it utopian. We need to make a place that's sustainable and nurturing for everyone that's in it. So let's do that work. Yes. Let's do that stuff. Yeah. It's nothing personal. It's like, I'm not mad at you, but I need to make sure that we're on the same page, that we live here with the goal of making this, that. Now it's really easy. It's harder to have like really big blowups about cleaning the dishes or this, that, and the other, because like, say I say I don't do the dishes. There's not going to be a, a narrative of Barrett doesn't care about me. You know, Barrett thinks I'm I'm irrelevant or something. Like there's not going to be this personal stuff. The conversation is going to be like, hey, you know the deal? Like we agree that we're, all right, you're right. Because right. we're working toward this goal, you know, because that we have this goal and that not every step is necessarily going to be fun or easy. But if we believe that we're working toward it, then that makes it worth it. Exactly. And we're all, we're going to, we're going to make mistakes. Yeah. Like, you know, it's, we're, we're all going to get annoyed, but it's not going to be a personal thing because we're able to articulate that we're working together to do something Evtopian, which is just live in a good, sustainable, trustworthy environment. And until one of us says that we're not interested in doing that, <laughs> that's a whole nother problem. But <laughs> until that point, like that's, and it just becomes much easier because you can articulate what being and doing good is. For most of the people that I interact with, like they know that my goal for interacting with them is like this space that we'll be in, this is an Eftopian one. Does that mean that Barrett's perfect the entire time he's in it? Nah, of course not. Does that mean that you're perfect? No, but like we're here to do this. That's right. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. And that there could be that it's a space to grow to be in that, that it, that it is something that we can attain, like you said, because I think that that's part of it is it's easy for us to throw our hands up and say, we're never going to get there. So this also goes to a part earlier in the book with like a Kierkegaard, where I talk about angst and anxiety. In the West, especially with these essence-based ideas dominating existence, we like to have the idea that we can be in control of everything. And like life can basically be like some kind of like static bliss where like you just don't grow and you're in control. Once you like encounter existence and you find out that you are going to grow and that you aren't in control of everything, everyone gets really anxious 
and they start freaking out because they have anxiety. And now we just have like a discourse where it's just perfectly okay for everyone to just like, I have anxiety and now like I'm rude because there's no other way for me to deal with my anxiety. And we all have anxiety. So let's just be rude together. And that's just like how it is. And it's like, no, you know, clearly I'm not going to trivialize anxiety because like we all have lots of stuff going on. But like what's happening is you're becoming aware of all the infinite stuff around you and you acknowledge that you can't control everything and that's going to freak everybody out. But if you start from the perspective of knowing that you can't control everything and that you are going to grow no matter what, like you could grow in a really negative way, you could grow in a really positive way, but like growth is just going to happen. So now what's the philosophy I'm going to take towards like living and growing? And if it's a philosophy of not doing bad, yikes. If it's a philosophy of creating a good place, well, now you can just do that. And that's just the process. And so like when you mentioned about like me being hopeful, the hope that people perceive is just me acknowledging I would like to live in a good place. I'm going to engage in actions no matter what. So let's see if I can find out a way to make sure that these actions are as beneficial to me and other people as possible and just do that. That's just, in my perspective, just a really pragmatic, reasonable way to go about things. Other people will perceive it as me being like really, really hopeful. It's like, sure, I guess, but that's just pragmatic. I don't, I wouldn't know another way to do things. Yeah, I hear you on that. I think that something that we're getting stuck in as a larger society is that if we as Americans don't believe that there's a way to make change that is helpful to everyone, that that is working toward First of all, we have to identify what we mean by good because unfortunately, I think like you said before, there's some people who just need awareness that what they're doing is not good and or it's not bad, you know, it's an action that is not bad instead of working towards something good. So that's that's one thing. But then also, once we start to value existence and focus on the existence of everyone living within these borders for, you know, for the sake of this conversation, like if we're focused on that, then it's easy, I think, for people to continue to not think about it and then not do anything <laughs> or they continue doing whatever they want to do because they're not, you know, so I think what you said about, I see, I hear what you're saying about being hopeful or whether that is hopeful or not, but I do think you are, you Barrett are taking action to say, I have these goals that are not just for myself, but for my society. And I am going to do things toward that goal. So it's like the last chapter I bring at that, that African proverb phrase, Ubuntu, which means I am because we are. And, you know, Westerners are now looking at this as like, you know, African existentialism. And it's clearly a philosophy that's completely different than Descartes, I think, therefore I am. So like in there, in Descartes, it's like, I think, I, I exist because I think. That's all essence idea stuff. And it's very singular. Like you don't need to interact with anybody else. You can just be completely delusional and it's just justified under this like way of thinking, you know, like I could think I'm the best basketball player in the world under, I think therefore I am works, you know, (laughs) and I am because we are like, I'm a person because I see the other person and I see that we are people together and I trust that they do the same thing. And so like, my actions and how I feel change can happen or whatever, it's going to 
depend on me seeing other people and other people seeing me because that's how our existence happens. The U.S. is very ethnocidal. So much of our society is based around one group of people not seeing the existence of another group of people, like not seeing another group's humanity and feeling that like not seeing another group's humanity is beneficial because you can profit off of that dehumanization. And so when this is like a like the cultural root of your society, people, until they grapple with that like flaw at the core, where like the core, the problem is at the root. It's not like a, a branch that went askew. It's at the root. And when you see that, now you have to have other philosophies that can completely change your perspective to then help you get there. But if you don't do that and you try to still like work within the corrupted system, you'll have a very like individualistic idea oriented way of trying to like solve stuff where like seeing someone else's humanity is like a secondary part. You know, that's like a, that's a, that's a thing that's really, I'll do after I get all the capital to fund it. You know? <laughs> and so it's a, uh, so we as a society just have, a completely like inverted way of going and doing things. We're not going to solve stuff until we kind of recognize that I, you know, pardon stranger things, but like we've been in the upside down. Yeah. You know? yeah, Right. Like, That's right. That's what. So it made me think about when I was living in Japan, one of the teachers that I worked with was really preoccupied with the fact that we capitalized the I in English and how to her way of thinking it's, like, why on earth do you cap? Why is I a proper noun? You, not a proper noun. We, not a proper noun. And so it was this question of why do we capitalize the individual in English? And if that's true, why don't we think that for other people? And then she countered that with the kanji for a person in Japanese. And it is, I'm showing bear with my hands, listeners, but it is one higher up line kind of on a slant and then a smaller one in the middle. And she says that when they teach the children, it is that the individual is held up by the group. And living there, I realized a lot about how individually focused my entire understanding of myself and the world was. But I think that, to your point, Barrett, We don't have to, we, again, as Americans here, we don't have to erase all things about being, about valuing individual preferences or, you know, being unique. Like, we don't have to get rid of all those things in order to recognize that we also are all better off when we take care of the we of our society and think about how, what that means for each of us. Totally. Like, an example I gave in the book, Mexico and a lot of these Latin American countries have actually, like, engaged in this process to a level like beyond the US. And Mexico is fascinating because they call themselves mestizo, which just means mixed. And it's a mixture between indigenous and Spanish. Now, the part that's really intriguing about it is that Mexicans do not like Hernan Cortez. Makes sense. He's a colonizer that went and killed a whole bunch of indigenous people. He's a bad man. They don't like him. And the the woman, La Maliche, who was like the woman who gave birth to Cortez's son she was indigenous so it's like the first like mestizo person like the person who was like the 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 two people that like birthed mestizo culture for the longest time mexicans disliked both of them and that dislike of the root 
does not mean that they now feel that Mexicans are like inherently bad. Like, you know, they can still be good people and not perfect people. You know, the country has all sorts of issues, but like they can create something good while acknowledging that the root is bad and and still explore that relationship. You know, in the recent years, the perception of La Malinche has changed quite a bit because they people recognize that the power dynamics within that time meant that she didn't have much of a say in all this type of stuff. And so, you know, it's not like she betrayed her people. She was just a woman placed in an impossible situation. And we need to respect and understand that and look at the nuance of it and not despise her. Cortez, on the other hand, still evil, bad man. And so like for the US, it's a thing that we have to come to to grips with where I'm not a bad person. You're not a bad person. We very well live in a place that was created by the celebration of some really, really bad ideas. But the celebration of bad ideas does not condemn everybody that lives here in perpetuity to always be a bad person. Now, if I celebrate bad ideas because I want to live in bad faith, if I want to believe in mauvaise foi and believe that like committing atrocities against indigenous people and against African people, and then like, you know, having all sorts of derivative atrocities that happen to other people who are, are people of color is somehow good. Well, yeah, now I am perpetuating bad stuff. <laughs> and that's a problem. But I don't have to do that. And I think if you have language that articulates why that's bad, such as ethnocide, but also language to articulate stuff that's good, such as like Eftopia, ethnogenesis, you know, cultural naissance, then you can start doing the good stuff because there's a clarity of what good is and there's also a clarity of what bad is. And the book, I hope, empowers people to see and do all of that stuff. Yeah. Absolutely. Barrett, I I just wanted to ask if people want to connect with you, in addition to reading your book, do you want to talk about the Sustainable Culture Lab and how they can plug in with you to follow you and keep up with the ideas that you're sharing and that you all are encouraging people to get involved in? Yeah, yeah, perfect. Yeah. So in addition to reading my book, I have an organization called the Sustainable Culture Lab, which is just, it's an extension of the work where the work, the goal was never for it to live just in the book, but to be able to live in many different ways. And so we have a newsletter, we have our Alters Festival, which is the Dios Muertos cross-cultural practice that we do every year. We're growing that. You can follow our newsletter and, and you get like a, a, a newsletter from me every Sunday called The Word, where I use our language to describe our society to help people have like a better understanding of what's going on in the world. And the website for that is just scl.community. And then if you, you know look at us up, look us up on Twitter, we had just started a TikTok, Instagram. It's the Sustainable Culture Lab, and you can follow us and donate and you know all that kind of stuff. Awesome. And I'll have those links in the show notes to you listeners. We wanted to wrap up. I feel like we could discuss this a very long time, and I'm very interested in Barrett's ideas, but I'm going to wrap up for today and to we're going to end with our Give Me One, and Barrett lives in D.C., and so we are going to talk about so a, a favorite place or just a place that you like in DC. What's your pick, Barrett? I would, I'm not going to say like a favorite place, like a restaurant. What I really like in DC is that uh, the buildings aren't that tall and it's really like a bicycle, like a bike accessible city. And so I like to go biking around DC. It makes it really, it's a good opportunity to 
get some exercise will also like clear my thoughts and think. And so I like that I can live in a city that I can just kind of like commute around on a bike or go on a nice walk. And that makes it easy for you to bump into and see a whole bunch of cool places because you're not zipping by them in your car. You're just slowly ambling around and finding something neat. So there's a lot of neat stuff in DC and I like that I can find those things on a bike or a nice walk. Awesome. Yeah. And I was telling Barrett listeners, a lot of you know that I moved recently. And one of the things we were saddest about was moving away from the proximity of being able to get to DC easily. But I have little kids. And so one of my most favorite things is all the different facets of the Smithsonian in DC and how accessible they are. And I I am most partial to the zoo because again, with young children, there is nothing more lovely than getting them to see, you know, just experiencing the joy of them seeing animals in their habitats. And that was really cool. But then also doing some of the museums as my oldest daughter was getting a little bit older and just watching her have her mind blown by these amazing things that she could see right there and see them for free. And I just thought all that was really amazing. So I love that. Yeah, as a DC resident, we all take the museums for granted because, like, we just we can go whenever we want, and they're all free. It. I will say, if I moved to some place and they didn't have all those types of museums, I would probably freak out. Now it's just like, yeah, sure, I'll go to that. Let's do it. Yeah, whatever. Yeah, you know. So it's that's also a, a, a plus. DC is a wonderful city. Nice. Well, thanks so much for joining us today, Barrett, and thank you, listeners, for tuning in. And we will. Be interested to see what you do next. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Do you have comments or opinions about what you heard today? We'd love to hear them. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Unabridged Pod or on the web at unabridgedpod.com for ways to support us. To get more involved, you can sign up for our newsletter, join a buddy read, or become an ambassador. Thanks for listening to Unabridged. Unabridged.